It Doesn't End Here is intended for mature audiences and may be disturbing to some. Please use discretion while listening. When you hear the word grooming, it's often in the context of adults using the manipulation tactic to abuse and exploit children. However, children are not the only population at risk for being groomed. Many adults in toxic or abusive relationships will experience grooming as their partners attempt to build a false sense of extreme emotional connection. Similar to child grooming, grooming in adult relationships are all about control and dominance. Grooming is a form of manipulation that is often extremely difficult to spot when a person doesn't know what to look for. Grooming is meant to feel good in the beginning. Ensuring the person being groomed has no idea that they are being primed for abuse. First, the groomer will attempt to build a friendship or emotional connection that will appear safe and genuine. As time goes on and the connection and intimacy build, the groomer will start slowly manipulating the victim to be dependent on them. Examples of this could be, maybe the groomer has persuaded their partner to open a joint bank account that only the groomer has control over. Or perhaps the groomer has been convincing their partner that their support network is actually toxic and that the groomer is the only person who truly cares about them. These tactics may seem obvious except to the person in the throes of an abusive relationship. Once a person realizes they are in a relationship in which they are being manipulated, the groomer has likely already done significant damage to their partner's life. If the groomer has been successful with their abusive behavior, they will have likely isolated their partner from their social network, instilled a sense of physical, financial, and or emotional dependence, and manipulated their partner to get what they want sexually, emotionally, and otherwise. One of the most successful ways to dodge adult grooming in intimate relationships is by knowing the red flags. When a person first meets a potential romantic partner, it can be helpful to make note of how fast the relationship is progressing. If it's moving faster than you're comfortable with, it's often a sign that your partner is attempting to gain trust or create a sense that their partner is so special and their love is so unique that it makes sense for their relationship to move faster than usual. Another red flag is a groomer's desire for unconditional control. This can look like controlling what a partner wears, who they see, where they go, and what they do with their free time. The partner being groomed is likely also being loved-bombed, which is another form of manipulation that enforces strong emotional connection and dependence. The quicker the process, the less chance the person has to take a step back and realize the reality of what is happening. It can all feel like a whirlwind romance until it's not. I'm Rachel Meadowcroft, and you're listening to It Doesn't End Here.
Last episode, Laura told us how she fell hard for Mason just weeks after separating from her ex-husband, Peter. Mason had just been released from prison, and Laura was helping him get back on his feet. In the beginning of their relationship, things were going great. However, around January 2021, Mason's paranoia took a turn for the worst. After a night out with friends, Laura and Mason had an intense argument, and when they got home, the police were waiting at Laura's house to do a wellness check. After that incident, we were fine. We were good for a couple days. I think that kind of really scared him having the cop there and with his prior history of dealing with the, you know, run-ins with the cops or dealing with the cops. He kind of straightened up for a little bit. He kind of, you know, got really nice and really loving again. And he was, you know, all about the relationship at that point. He was, everything's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. We're going to be, you know, I love you. It's okay. Nothing's going to happen. But then, like, after a few days of that, it's like he couldn't keep up that persona anymore. He started kind of, like, blaming me for calling the cops. And I was like, it wasn't me who called the cops. My friends were, you know, scared of what would happen because you were so aggressive with me at the bar. And so that right there caused the next fight. You know, the accusations start. You know, one thing leads to the next. He starts, you know, screaming at me. I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. You were okay. We were fine. And now all of a sudden, it's my fault. The cops were called. It was such a drastic change that I just didn't understand. I didn't understand where it was going, why it was going that way. I kind of got a little nervous. To be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of him, but at that point, but I was like, I don't understand where this is going. I don't understand where, where he's going with this. Like what's going to happen next? When we got into February, it was, you know, the same accusations kept coming up. He was so mad over the cop being called out on him for a wellness check. And I kept trying to reassure him, like, nothing happened. Nothing, you know, the same thing. She just looked at me. I had no bruising, so there was nothing she could do. And it was just him constantly accusing me of calling the cops on him. Why would I betray him like that? I was like, it's because of your actions. Like, <laughs> your actions are what caused the cop to come out here in the first place. If you hadn't have been like that around my friends or in the first place. And he just didn't understand, like, his actions were what caused that to happen. Were you still pushing him to try to obviously go get a job because you were financially supporting him? I was constantly asking Mason to get a job. I knew from the get-go that I could not afford my car, his car, the house, all the bills. I feel like I was constantly asking him to go get a job. I didn't care what it was. I would, you know, go back to force where we found the first job. He wanted, you know, like a big paying job. And with his history and his background, he wasn't going to get that big paying job. I mean, he can go to construction and and do well, but it's not going to be like, you know, CEO of the company right off firsthand, you know, (laughs) which is, he's like, I need to make this much money. And I'm like, that's not, you have to work up to that. You can't just like, it was almost like a sense of entitlement. It was like a whole list of stuff he needed before he could even take a job. During that time was the pandemic unemployment. And so you got an extra whatever dollar amount on top of your unemployment benefits. Well, he actually somehow did get his unemployment benefits, even though he was the one who quit. But it was because it was during the pandemic, he was able to kind of swing it the way he wanted it. At that point, we enrolled him in the unemployment benefits. But once he got on that, it was like 
pulling teeth to try and get him out of that. <laughs> he was like, no, I can make money sitting at home. I don't want to do anything else. And then obviously, if he got a job, that meant he would lose the unemployment benefit. Right, exactly. Most of his family was on disability. They didn't work. They just hung out around the house. And so that's what he wanted. He wanted the same thing. And I was like, you can't. You've got to help me. Like I have, we have bills to pay. We have stuff that we need to do. You know, and we were talking about wanting to start a life together. And I told him, I said, you're going to have to have a job, a steady job before we can ever be anything more than what we are right now. I can't support both of us the rest of my life. I can't do it. I'm not going to. That was a lot of our arguments at that point. It was him needing a job. He was like, well, I'm getting money through unemployment, through the pandemic. So as long as I'm making money to pay my bills. During this time, Mason was taking his medication sporadically. This caused his paranoia to increase. And Mason started accusing Laura of sleeping with other men. He started accusing me of, first it was the paranoia about the medication. Then it started to increase into accusations of me talking to other guys. I had asked one of my friends who I'd known for like 15, 16 years to go to lunch. Well, Mason found that text message in my phone after I'd been going through it. And I don't know how long he started going through my phone. I just know... At that point when he found that, that's when I knew he'd been going through my phone. (laughs) And it's not like I wanted to hide it from him. I just, it never happened. It never came up. I didn't tell him, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal. That text message right there alone was what changed his complete demeanor. It changed into accusations of me messing with his medication. Then it was accusations of me cheating on him. Then it was accusations of me sneaking out in the middle of the night to go have sex with someone or meet up with someone. And in my mind, I'm like, one, I don't have to sneak out of my own house. Two, why would I go cheat on him when I have him right there? That didn't make any sense to me. That was the beginning of everything else that started. So that right there was another turning point in our relationship. When he found that text message, he started becoming more aggressive, verbally and physically aggressive at that point. In February of 2021, he was, you know, accusing me of cheating on him, accusing me of asking guys out for lunch. It was only the one. Never actually happened. And I never cheated on him. He was just irate. I mean, yelling, screaming, calling me names. I'm such a whore. He can't believe he even is with me. He shoved me onto the back of the couch I was like, what are you doing? Why did you even do that? And he was he was like, you're such a slut. And I can't really, you know, I'm all these words. And I was like, I'm nothing that you're calling me. Like, stop being the way you're, I don't understand why you're being this way. I don't understand why you are accusing me of all these things that I'm not doing. He grabbed me by my shoulders and he kneed me in the stomach. It knocked the breath out of me. I couldn't breathe for what felt like five, ten minutes. I mean, I was just like on my knees and on my hands on the floor. I could not breathe. I couldn't catch my breath. I was like gasping for air. 
He finally realized that I was actually not faking it and that I could not breathe. And so he got down there with me and started, you know, trying to help me. I like pushed him away. Like, don't, I didn't talk obviously, but I was like, don't touch me. And I was like shaking and scared. I didn't know what was, what he was going to do if he got that close to me again. I didn't know if there was, if he was going to try and like finish me off. There were so many emotions running through my head and I was terrified. So much fear was running through my body. I was like, I was just shaking and I couldn't, I was uncontrollably shaking. When he started crying, I was like, okay, I'll let him help me. He's crying. He understands what's going on. And so he like grabbed a hold of me. He sat down with me and he put me in between his legs and he just like held me. And we both cried together. That right there, I feel like we were already trauma bonded from the beginning. And him kneeing me like that in the stomach and knocking the breath out of me for that long. And then him coming to me and crying and holding me and felt like that increased our bond even more. Because at that point, I was like, okay, I knew in my mind I needed to get away because I could not understand why he did what he did. But I also knew that I didn't want to be around if there was any more of that. After that, were you tempted to leave him or were you just kind of thinking it will get better? He'll get better. At that point when he was saying, oh my gosh, you know, he was like, I'm so, you know, he was apologizing profusely. He was saying, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe what just happened. Like he was terrified that he even did that. I think, I think he was so shocked and there was so much emotions on both sides that I believed him when he said he wouldn't do it again. I believed him when he said that he was sorry. And I believed him when he told me he loved me still. Shortly after that, we had our next argument and it was over another, you know, him accusing me again of cheating on him. In my mind, I'm like, wow, this didn't last long. Like I thought this wasn't going to be a thing anymore. (laughs) And so that's how our arguments always started. His accusations, his constant name calling. In my mind, I was like, this cannot be happening again. Now I'm getting a little like my senses are getting increased and I'm getting worried. That time he did not hit me. We actually were able to go our separate ways. At one point, he was in the living room and I was in my bedroom. I told him, I said, I don't think this is going to work out. Like, I think we both need to go our separate ways. We cannot keep going in the direction that we're going. So I asked him to leave. He actually was going to leave very cordially. He was like, are you sure this is what you want? And I said, yes, this is what I want. I want you to leave. I just don't, I can't be in this type of relationship. This isn't for me. And I said, you shouldn't want to have this relationship either. This is not healthy. He's been going through so much. I was going through so much emotions with the divorce. He was going through so many emotions with him, you know, fresh out of prison and not taking his medication properly. There was just so much between us that was not right (laughs) that I finally asked him to leave. And so he started packing up his stuff. And when he packed up his stuff, he was crying, which made me cry. And I got, we both got really emotional. He was almost done packing up all of his stuff. And he was like, are you sure this is what you want? And I said, well, no, it's not what I want, but we can't keep going in the direction that we're going. 
We can't have these, you know, screaming, yelling arguments. We can't have, I can't keep having you accuse me of all this stuff, you know, cheating on him, messing with his medication, just all these crazy accusations. I, I said, I can't, I can't keep doing it. He actually ended up staying. That was my biggest mistake. I should have never let him stay after he packed his stuff. I was heartfelt. You know, he was like, you're putting me out on the streets. I don't have anywhere to go. You know, he's like, I don't want to sleep in my car. Was that true? No, he could go. He had places to go. I think it was just him trying to make me feel guilty and put a guilt trip on me. Yeah. He had his friend's house he could have gone to. He did not want to go back to my ex-in-laws where he was staying before. And he could have gone to his family's house, but his family's yeah. house was like an hour and a half away at that point. So he had places to go. I think he just wanted to put that guilt trip on me. Yeah. I mean, of course, he didn't want to leave you. You were giving him a place to stay for free, gave him a car, mm -hmm. which obviously he was supposed to pay for, but he wasn't paying for. Right. And he could treat you like shit and abuse you. And there was like no real consequence to it. Of course, he didn't want to go anywhere else. Every time I tried to give Mason the consequence of him abusing me or calling me names, it was like thrown back in my face or made into a guilt trip or like turned around and used against me. There was nothing I could do or say that was going to change anything. Did things get a little bit better after that conversation? Like after he realized that he almost lost you? We actually were good for, I would say, two or three weeks. It was different. You know, we started laughing again. We started flirting. We started having fun. We started, you know, we went up to his families quite a bit and we were hanging out with them and we were hanging out with his friends. We didn't really hang out with my friends after all of that. Once one of my friends called the cops on, on him, we were no longer going to be hanging out with anybody of my, none of my friends. After about two or three weeks of being really, really good, no real big arguments, no real big fights, the name calling had kind of dropped off. I was getting really excited. I was like, oh my goodness, here we go. This is going to be great. We're going to actually change this around. We're going to be just fine. We went up to Blackwell. His sister had asked us to watch some of her kids. She has six kids. We went up there and we were having a great time. It was fun. It was, you know, we were playing with the kids. We were having fun with the family. It was just fun all around. You know, the kids loved Aunt Laura and Uncle Mason being there. After everything we had been through and then the two to three weeks leading up to that day, I was like, this is it. This is what we were meant to do. This is what we were meant to be. This is exactly what we wanted. We wanted a fun-filled relationship with family, friends. It was great. <laughs> other than that, I can't describe it other than that. Sunday morning, we woke up. His whole demeanor had changed, probably because he wasn't taking his medication like he's supposed to. I mean, his whole attitude and demeanor changed overnight while we were sleeping. His dad had stayed over late that night, and he became increasingly paranoid. The morning came. We were cooking breakfast. The family, you know, his dad came over. The other kids came over. We were all cooking breakfast, and I had to go to the bathroom. So I was like, hey, we watch this while I go to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom, and he freaked out. 
he came running into the bathroom, like banging on the door. And he's like, who's in there with you? And I was like, uh, me, myself and I, like, <laughs> just me. And he was like, open the door right now. And he was like screaming at me. So I went over there and opened the door and he like shoved the door open. It pushed me back. So I, you know, kind of stumbled backwards. And I was like, there's no one in here. And he's like checking the shower. I was like, what's going on? Like, he's like, where's my dad? And I'm like, I don't know where your dad's at. And he's like, bullshit. You know, you don't know where my dad's at. He was in here, wasn't he? And then we come out, we come back out in the kitchen. Oh, there's his dad walking inside from smoking. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I don't understand what's going on. After breakfast, Mason's family left, leaving Laura and Mason to look after his nephews, who were two and seven at the time. We're outside playing around. We were out in the garage doing whatever. The kids went inside and he was getting in that state of mind again. So I was like, well, I'm going to go inside. When I got up to the steps, he was behind me. He grabbed the back of my head, like a handful of hair, pulled me back and said, who are you fucking? And I said, you're the only person I'm having sex with. <laughs> like, there's, I don't know what else to say. And he's like, you're fucking my dad, aren't you? And I was like, there's nothing going on between me and your dad. Nothing whatsoever. And I was shocked. I was like, you were just in the garage minding your own business. I'm going to get the kids. And all of a sudden now I'm screwing your dad. So there was like maybe five or six concrete steps leading up to the door. He shoved me onto the steps and then laughed at me for being on the ground. And he's like, what are you doing on the ground? Where, how'd you get there? And I was like, Mason, what are you doing? He started laughing and it was an evil laugh. I've never heard him laugh like that in my entire life. And he grabbed my head and started just banging it on the concrete steps. And I remember at one point I was like, oh my God, my head's like pounding. He stopped and I like grabbed the back of my head because I was like, I hope I'm not bleeding. Like, am I bleeding out? You know, like my head was just like profusely pounding. I couldn't see straight. I'm pretty sure he helped me up off the steps and we went inside. All I remember is seeing nobody in the kitchen and I walked into the kitchen and that's the last thing I remember. I realized he had hit me. He had sucker punched me on the right side of my head, really close to my eye socket. After I kind of came to, I was falling over. When I caught myself, I was falling over, but I actually didn't hit the floor. Thank goodness, because I would have split my head open probably at that point. Like my head felt like it was a thousand pounds. I didn't know what had happened and I was in shock and my adrenaline was going and I immediately started crying. I knew right then he had hit me. That was the first time he had really hit me hard. I was thinking, oh my gosh, he was just hitting my head to the concrete. We came inside. He hit, he sucker punched me in the face. I made my way over to the kitchen table and I was just holding my head and I was crying uncontrollably and I couldn't stop. And he was like, stop crying. That's what I get for cheating on him. And that's what I get for fucking his dad behind his back. And I was like, I'm not doing any of those things. And I didn't deserve any of this. 
it was like a sense of entitlement, you know, like a sense of entitlement or like a sense of like a superior power over me. And I just remember sitting there like, what have I gotten myself into? In my brain, I couldn't fathom anything. I was in so much pain and in so much, I was so hurt. I was so embarrassed. I did not know what to do at that point. I was terrified, like the most scared of him I've ever been in my life. He was always someone I thought to be like a protector of me. I never in my wildest dreams ever would have thought we would have gotten to that point. Did you leave with him after that incident? Did you guys like leave and go back to your house together? So I actually left him up there. So I was like, you know, I've got to go back to work on Monday. You don't have a job. Someone needs to stay here with the boys. He was like, okay, I'll stay. So I left him there. I don't even remember the drive home. After being hit that hard in the head, my head being smashed against the concrete so many times. I can't even remember how many times. I couldn't even tell you what I was numb. I was numb. That's all I can think of. I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I have no words for what you just described. I mean. Terrified. I I don't wish that on my worst enemy. I would never want anybody to be in that situation ever. That moment of being that terrified is on a whole nother level. You can go to a haunted house, be terrified. <laughs> this is like a thousand times that. I can't even describe it. Unless you've been there, it's you almost have to experience it to feel it. And I hate saying that because I don't want anyone to ever experience that. I don't want anybody to ever go through that. That type of fear, uncontrollable, honestly. And the emotions that follow that, I can't. You know, you had a very traumatic situation that you could have had PTSD from and you probably did and still do to some extent. Did you think about calling the police on him at that point? No, I did not. I knew if I called the police, he would be gone. In my mind, I could not be the one to put him back in prison. I knew what he had gone through. I knew where he had been. Looking back on it, I do remember him saying, you know, like, you're just like the rest of them. You're going to put me, you know, you're going to put me in prison and and I'm like, no, I'm not. I would never do that. I would never call the cops on you. I would never, you know, it's almost like he was grooming me, which was not call the cops. It was almost like he was grooming me, but putting a guilt trip on me at the same time. And I couldn't be the one to do that to him. I did not want him to think of me like that. Do you tell anyone about no. the incident? I didn't tell a soul. I ended up going to the Apple store. My sister, April, met me because I hadn't hung out with her for a little bit. So I was like, hey, you want to go to the Apple store with me? We'll get some dinner, you know, hang out. And she was like, sure. My sister comes in and she comes in on my right side. You know, we hugged and I said hi and she said hi. And she looked at me and she goes, why do you have a black eye? And I looked at her. I'm pretty sure I looked very terrified because <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. Like, she's going to start questioning me. What's going to come out of her mouth next? Like, I was kind of scared. <laughs> so I was like, I kind of tried to play it off like, oh, I do. I was like, it doesn't even hurt. You know, but I'm like, it hurts <laughs> like when I'm touching it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Trauma is a catalyst. 
it provokes significant change in the lives of survivors, as well as in the lives of their caregivers. Join me, Carrie Rickert, on my podcast, Transformational Trauma and Healing, as our guests share their stories of trauma and the resources that have been beneficial to them. We will celebrate our guests' successes and learn from their struggles, adding tools to our trauma survival toolbox along the way. She was already in the store when I walked in. Then I looked at her and then I like looked at the guy that was helping us. And obviously I'm questioning her in the store with this guy present. And so it's making her nervous because I don't care. I'm going to question you the minute I have questions. And I was like, Laura, why do you have a bruise on your face? Her eyes literally got as big as half dollars. (laughs) She was like, I don't have a bruise on my face. And I was like, yes, you do. And so I opened up my camera and showed her that she has a bruise on her face. And it was like in the corner of her eye. It was about the size of a dime. She was like, oh, Dakota, our parents' dog. She ran at me and hit me. And so I kept looking at her and I had, my expressions are all over my face. And so she knew exactly what I was thinking, that she's lying to me. This is not making sense. Nothing is going on. What she's saying happened. I didn't say much after that, but I just kept eyeballing her bruise on her face. So she knew I was looking at it. Yeah. So you knew that that lie was bullshit pretty much. Oh, 100%. So I started paying more attention to, like, her body as in, like, bruising or marks or anything like that. I didn't even realize I had a black eye. So that means I went to work all day with a black eye. Because I don't wear, like, I don't wear makeup. I don't wear foundation. I don't wear mascara. Like, I wear nothing while I'm at work. The only time I actually put on makeup is when I go out or, you know, go on a date or something when I want to look nice. She was like, well, that's kind of weird. And I was like, I know. I don't know how I would have gotten it. And I knew that was going to be the start of her questions. That was going to be the start of her not trusting me because I lied to her. And she knows dead on when I lie. So did she buy your story of, I don't know how it got there? She did while we were in the Apple store. When we got out of the Apple store, I kind of just kept changing the subject. I didn't want to answer her questions. I wasn't ready to answer her questions. So I told her whenever I was ready to talk, I will come talk to her. Were you acting completely normal as in like your personality? Or did you just stay the same as much as possible? I tried to stay the same as much as possible. I tried never to change um, my demeanor, my personality. I was still a happy-go-lucky, bubbly person that I always am. If I'm that way, no one will question me. So I learned to stay that way. I learned to compartmentalize my feelings when I was around people. So I can separate my feelings right then and there. It's kind of scary how I can do that. But my therapist says the same thing. She's like, you're very good at that. As a female, I don't know how I can do that because that's more of like a male trait. But she's like, it's a learned a learned behavior that you've had to manage. I mean, I feel like you got really good at that in your marriage because your marriage was so much like that and you had to compartmentalize the 
sexual part of your relationship and then obviously the feelings apart from it. You just got really good at hiding your feelings and shoving things in certain corners of your mind to just kind of forget about it. I mean, it goes way deeper than that. It goes all the way back to my childhood playing sports, having to leave everything off the field, you know, on the field when I leave the field or leaving my personal life beyond the dugout. Once I walk in the dugout, it's game time, you know. So I think even from a young age, I've had to manage my life in that sense. I can't imagine being that scared of my boyfriend and having him knee me in the stomach and sucker punch me in the face while still loving him and trying to help him regardless of this abuse. A red flag in any relationship is when one person has to solely rely on the other. I mean, I think a healthy relationship is when each person can be mutually independent on their own. And then two healthy people come together and make a relationship. A relationship is not one person solely taking care of another person in every way, emotionally, financially, mentally, you know. I mean, oof, this just sounds like a shitstorm, you know, altogether. Starting off a relationship where one person is giving their all and the other person is giving absolutely nothing is just a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, well, I think, you know, at the beginning, he was showing signs of, uh, okay, I'm going to turn my life around. And so I don't think she was thinking about what happens if he doesn't, you know, like, what happens if this goes wrong? I think throughout, I think I've already heard Laura say this a couple of times, and maybe she even says it more later in the episodes, but she kept saying, like, what are you doing? Who are you? Who is this person, you know, to him when he would act crazy? I think we always tend to just want to see the very best parts of people or the good parts that they show us. And then when they do act crazy, like we said, I think it's like that 10% of the time, it's like we completely block that out and we're like, okay, that's not really them. They're not, that's not really them. That's just how they're acting in this moment. But honestly, I'm, I'm just like, he's actually showing you who he really is right now. Like, this is him. This is, this is who he is, you know? Rather than thinking, oh, that was weird. <laughs> right. That was a one-off instance. Yeah, you should think, holy shit, I actually just got a glimpse of who they really are. For all resources used in this episode, please go to itdoesn'endhearpodcast.com. If you like It Doesn't End Here, subscribe now and share with two friends. By sharing this podcast, you may help someone who you didn't even know needed help. I am not a doctor or a therapist. If you or someone you know is currently in an abusive relationship, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. 